you know we've reached the halfway point in the book of Exodus. We're halfway through chapter 20 of 40 chapters. I like easy math like that. But I, want, I just want to say this. If you think in your mind that all the good stuff in the book of Exodus has passed, listen, you're wrong. It's not all over. The second half of the book of Exodus is uniquely different, but equally as powerful and impactful as the first half of the book of Exodus was. And there's only one way to find out. We're going to study it. So that's where we're at. So Exodus chapter 20. Pray with me as we open up our Bible study this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And God, we, we come to you with open hands. I love to posture myself with my hands open, grasping for you, wanting to receive what it is that you want to give me, letting go of what it is that I may be holding on that's preventing me to grab a hold of what you want to give me. Father, we're here, and we want to touch you. We want to hear from you. We want to see you. And Father, I pray as only you, Holy Spirit, can do as you anoint my lips to teach your people. Father, I pray that you split hairs this morning and you, you draw us oh so close to the holiness of your, of your being, of your person, of your mountain. When at the same time you remind us that we are hidden in you, Jesus. That by grace we've been saved, not of works, not through a keeping of the law. But Father, as only you can do, just show us the balance between grace and law, between faith and works. Show us how all of those things are reconciled together, can be reconciled because they're not in opposition. They're in agreement. They just have to find their right order in you, Jesus. So I just pray that you would equip us, you'd prepare us to hear from your word, you'd reveal yourself through it. We need all of that, and we've come to the right place because we've come to you, Jesus, in prayer. So do that, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question. This is just a radical question, but, but think about it this way. What if I asked you, hey, I want you to send me an email with the top 10 most important to you things, right? You could probably come up with that. That wouldn't take you that long to come up with the top 10 things that are most important to you. Well, let's just kind of switch gears for a second and say, what if God did that for us? What if God gave us the list of his top 10 things? Wouldn't that be radical? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't you want to read it? I know I would. And that's exactly what we're going to do in Exodus chapter 20. This chapter is the list of God's top 10 things, the things that are most important to him. Now this morning, we're just going to cover the first four in this kind of tablet number one, the first four that pertain to how are we to love God. And then the next six are how, how are we to love other people? That's how those 10 can be rightly divided. But I just think that that concept is so radical to me. There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament law as a whole, 613, and listen, 603 are given in a private conversation between God and Moses, but these 10 that we're going to talk about this, this morning, God set them apart himself. God audibly speaks these 10 before all the people, the two plus million people that comprise the the nation of Israel, God is going to boom them out with his own voice, directly, clearly communicating his top 10. So he sets them apart, and that's where we're going, and that's what I really want us to talk about this morning. These top 10, this is God's moral law. 
This is God's righteous standard. This is his commandments as we know them, but they show us how we, how his people, and even how we today can respond to the loving grace that he's poured out to us. How we can respond to the great deliverance that he has poured out for us, for us through his son here in the book of Exodus through the work that he has done delivering them out of Egypt. So it's following in sequence for what is going on, but I just want you to think about it this way as well. God is taking out all the guesswork. Sometimes we think, well, well, how can I love God? I mean, I wanna love God. What is the will of God? How can I please God? We ask questions like that in Christ. We wanna know. And God takes all the guesswork out. He says, you do not have to put a blindfold on and throw darts in the dark and hope that you hit some target. I'm giving you my target. I'm telling you how I want to be loved. That's what these first four commandments are all about. It's God telling us, this is how I want you to love me. This is how I desire you to show me your love through obeying these four things. Now, before we get to the text, I just want to prepare you. In addition to what I just did, that's not the introduction. I've got a little bit longer of an introduction to set up God's top 10, these 10 commandments this morning. I just ask that you bear with me. But the whole premise of this lengthy introduction is this statement. I want you Christians to know that these 10 commandments that we're going to cover over the next 10 weeks, they are every bit as relevant to us today as they were here in the book of Exodus for the children of Israel in their day. Listen, they're for us today. Now, why do I say that? Why do I feel that that's so important? Because there's this idea that can make its way through the church, can make its way even through some of your hearts that says, well, well, I thought that was old covenant. I mean, they're found in the Old Testament. And says, I'm not under the law anymore. I am under grace. I am in Christ now. Those things don't apply to me anymore. And listen, I'm here to tell you that is not true. That is not the right mentality nor perspective I want you to have, God wants us to have as we approach these commandments, this top 10. So here's what I want to do. I want us to take a look at some some information that we're going to be given later in the book of Exodus for us to understand what is going on. What does it mean when we say we're not under the law? What type of laws are we talking about here? And I just want to start breaking this down. Bear with me. This will make more sense as we start to unravel it. But I mentioned earlier that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament within the law of Moses. But you can break those 613 laws down into three categories. The top 10 we're going to talk about, that's God's moral law. And then you have ceremonial laws. And then you have civil laws. And the ceremonial and the civil laws, those do not pertain to us in the same capacity as God's moral law still does. There's civil laws that would give the nation of Israel guidelines and instructions for how they were to function as a nation, how they were to restrict the usage of land, how they were to function with debts in in contacts with their, their neighbor in the year of Jubilee, and a lot of other things about how they were to function as a nation. <clears throat> But those civil laws, they don't pertain to us in the church the same way because the church is not a nation. The church is not Israel. The church is a part of a kingdom. 
And that kingdom has, has a king whose name is Jesus, but we're talking about a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit who now dwells inside of our hearts and leads us. So we're led by the Spirit, not under the law anymore. So those civil laws, they don't apply in the same capacity. Now, don't mistake me. I'm not saying <clears throat> that they're not still applicable I'm not saying that we can't glean some fruit from studying through them, but I'm saying they don't apply in the same way that we see them apply in the book of Exodus. There's also ceremonial laws in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus. These are laws that helped govern and regulate a sacrificial system. Remember, they're, they're worshiping God through temple worship or through tabernacle worship, through the blood of bulls and goats that temporarily covered sin. Not permanently, but those ceremonial things, they said, hey, you need to do this if you're going to remain ceremonially clean and able to worship God. Or if you do that, you're going to be ceremonially unclean. But those things have been revoked. Not only were they all pointing to Jesus, but Jesus has cleansed us fully and finally forever with his perfect righteous blood as the Lamb of God. So it's not, those don't, those don't apply. Again, they're applicable. There's some things to be able to glean from, but they're, they're not the same. We're not under those civil or ceremonial laws anymore, right? Those things don't apply. They were pointing us to Jesus. They were a shadow and a type and a roadmap showing us that Jesus is our fulfillment over all of those. But when we get back to these top 10 that we're going to talk about, the 10 commandments, this is God's moral law. Think about it, not civil, not ceremonial, moral law. This is God saying what is right and what is wrong, how he wants us to love him and how he wants us to love the people around us. And these things do not, have not, will not change. This is God's moral law still today. Each of these 10 commandments that we're going to cover, they're all going to be repeated in our New Testament Bibles. I put the verses for the first four in your study guides this week, all I'll make sure I get the next six in your study guide next week. They're all there and they're still applicable. They're going to be repeated. So I, I want us to understand that we as Christians, contrary to popular culture and opinion, there is an absolute truth. There is a moral law. There is a moral law giver. And his name is Yahweh, the great I am, the Lord God himself. And we have his top 10 recorded in Exodus chapter 20. This is his unchanging, eternal, written in stone, as they say, moral law. And it's going to be the standard by which every human being who has ever lived or ever will live is going to be judged by. Did you keep these commandments or didn't you? Now, big picture, nobody has been able to measure up to that standard on our own. We need Jesus. Jesus is the only one who was able to keep and fulfill. So I'm not trying to undercut any of that, right? We need God's grace. We have it through faith in Jesus. But I'm simply saying these 10 commandments are not for yesteryear. These commandments are for today still. They, sh- they still teach us something about God. They're commandments, not suggestions. They're not a starting point for us to build upon. They're an ending point that we can measure our lives against. So I want you to understand that. Why this lengthy introduction? Because there has been a steady decline in our culture for decades as our morality steeply declines. Why? It all started when we got away from these 10 commandments. It all started when we kind of said, well, those aren't for today anymore. God doesn't mean that anymore. If 
God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, if God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, where did we get an idea that these things don't apply anymore? Listen, not from the Lord God himself, not from his Bible, not through the Holy Spirit that testifies that these words are still for today. We got that from our culture. And so we're trying to unwind some of those thoughts, come back to God's moral law, God's moral compass, and say, what is true about these Ten Commandments that we're about to study? Well, number one, therefore, today, I want to show just a couple reference verses to show you that we have verses that affirm these Ten Commandments are still for today. Our first one comes from Matthew chapter 5. Verses 17 through 19. This is Jesus giving that great sermon on the mount. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, and listen, teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a lot to talk about there, right? Words of Jesus, very, very powerful. But let me just point out two things. Number one, Jesus doesn't come to destroy, abolish, remove, take away the law. He says, I came to fulfill it. I came to meet the standard of perfection that God laid out by his moral law. But it shows us that that standard was unattainable to us, showing that we've broken one, we're guilty of breaking them all, which effectively shows us our need for a Savior, hence our need for Jesus. That's why there's no other name to call on and be saved. Jesus alone fulfilled it. That's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father but through me. Why? Because he fulfilled the law. The same standard that is still applicable today and is only fulfilled when we put our faith in Jesus, receive God's grace, and now can enter in. But understand that he says, I didn't do away with it. It's not destroyed. I fulfilled it. I am the law's fulfillment, Jesus says. Which means it's still there because he's still the fulfillment. But then the second part about this, Jesus says, do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? And listen, Christians, Jesus wants all of us to be great. He says, yes, be great. Yes, be the servant, be the least, but be great from the perspective that he wants us to be great. And how do we do that? We do the law. We aim to do the law. We desire to do the law, to be obedient to God's law. And we teach that it's still applicable today. That's just being completely obedient to Jesus' own words. So it's for today. Here's another reference verse. This comes later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 and 40. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question saying, Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. 
Check this out. Jesus gets asked the question, what is the great commandment in the law? Listen, Jesus, what is the greatest thing in the Old Testament in the law? Notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, forget about all that. I came to bring the new. None of that matters anymore. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, well, what do you think is the greatest? Why don't, why don't you just decide? Why don't you get a few of your buddies together or the brightest minds around you? Why don't you decide what the greatest law is? Jesus, as only the Son of Man can do, God in the flesh, with authority, answers the question and takes the Ten Commandments, the Ten Laws that make up God's moral law, and he summarizes them by two. Ten become two. And he takes the first four and says, you can all call those first four. This is how God wants to be loved. You can take the next six and you say, this is how God wants you to love your neighbor. That's the law. That's the moral law. And it's still here for today. In fact, all of it can hang on these two commandments. So understand that that's what we're talking about here. Loving God and loving people and Jesus affirming that it's still here for today. Paul is going to say this concerning the law. I encourage you to read Romans chapter seven, a very important chapter in our New Testament Bibles, the the letter to the Romans. But in chapter seven, Paul has spent much of his time telling us that we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. Telling us that the law served its purpose, showing us that we are sinners. The perfect standard of God showed itself to be higher, greater, unattainable to me. Hence, that's why I need Jesus. But then when he has the opportunity, I mean, it's teed up. He could easily say, and that's why the law is no good anymore and we don't need to worry about it. He goes out of his way to say the opposite. Romans 7 verse 12, he says this, so then in conclusion, the law is holy, the commandment holy, righteous, and good. The law still has a place. It is still God's moral law. It is still the moral compass. It is still the absolute truth. It is still how God wants to be loved. And it's how we are to love the people around us. So we don't throw this out. Church, we could keep going with this. The whole Bible study could be about this. I could show you more verses that are in your study guides where Jesus says, those who love me, you know what they do? They obey me. Well, how? By keeping the commandments. What commandments is he talking about? Not the ceremonial, not the civil anymore. His moral law, loving God and loving your neighbor. We could talk about First John. We've been in that in our Thrive group. John says, this is what the love of God looks like in your life. Do you want to know that you're a Christian? Well, you can know you're a Christian if you have love for your brother, for the Lord, and a desire to keep the commandments. That's what he says. Look at the reference verses. So just note this. I'm hoping the point is being made. The law is still for today in this capacity. The law is still for today for us to aim at, for, for it to bring a stability to our culture, to our society by saying, this is what God speaks into existence. This is what God has ordained. This is God's word. This is God's heart. And every single time we look at the law, it's your point is to say, I love your law, but I love you, Jesus, more because I can't keep it. I can't keep it on my own. But that doesn't mean I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What does Paul say? It's holy, it's good, it's perfect, and it's just. It is effective to show my need for a savior, but it's also effective to show me my need for God's morality in my life. 
human beings, we are not the standard or authority for morality. We've never been. Right, Contrary to public opinion, contrary to our cultural society and the way things are going, people think, well, I can be my own moral compass. No, you can't. No, we can't. Because we're sinful human beings. We have a natural bent towards either legalism or lawlessness. Isn't it? There's your polar opposites on the same spectrum, but not God. He is perfect, holy, eternal, just, righteous, and when he lays something out, he doesn't ever need to retract it because it was perfect from the beginning before the foundations of the world were laid. That's these top 10. So as we think about some of these things, we want to know them. We want to live by them. Listen closely, not because if we do them, we are saved, but because we're saved already. Listen to this. We have been saved by God's grace through faith. The people here in the book of Exodus have been delivered out of Egypt and set free from Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. But now that they are saved, listen, loving God and loving people is what saved people do. Okay, that's what we do. If you have truly been born again and the Spirit of God reigns in you and Jesus sits on the throne of your life, which he should, Christians, then we obey him because you know who he is? Lord. It's a lordship issue. So I'm hoping you're, you're understanding the importance of this situation, but you're also accepting the reality of this is what God wants for us. I was thinking about this illustration. When God comes to you and says, hey, here's how I want to be loved. We're going to see these, these top four. It's like a husband saying, I really want to love my wife. And so, you know, maybe, maybe we talk, we're in a conversation and I give you, hey, here's, here's the five love languages, a great book. I, I refer it to so many different couples and you find out, husband, you find out that your wife, she wants some words of affirmation. She wants some gifts. She wants some quality time. She wants some physical touch, wherever it, it may be. No husband who really loves his wife is going to say, I don't care how she wants to be loved. I'm just going to do things my way right? Fool. Nobody does that. If you really love your wife, you say, I want to love her the way she wants to be loved so she can receive my love in its fullness. And that's the same thing that God is saying. I want to be obeyed. I want to be loved through these four instances. And for all of us who really truly love him, we want to love him exactly the way he wants to be loved. That's what this is about. So again, I'm hoping the point is being made of the importance here. This law, these top 10, they're still for today. Yes, we are going to fall short at times. Yes, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to, to, to give us the strength and the sustenance to be able to do this. No, we don't live in condemnation or guilt when we fall short. We confess our sin, we repent, we get back up and we start walking with Jesus again, pointing back at his moral standard, the target on the wall. But this is still for today. And the one thing we don't do is seek to change God's moral standard. We don't seek to take what we want and leave what we don't. We say, here's what God spoke. And here I am at the foot of the mountain figuratively, and I'm going to obey what he has laid out for me. Right? Don't be like the person who thinks the sun is supposed to obey the clock. Right? That's ridiculous. The sun that God created and hung in the sky is not more important than the clock that sits on your desk, desk that was created by some human being. 
right? It will never work that way. We're not greater than the Lord. The clock isn't greater than the sun. We adhere to his word. We bow down to him. Our culture has been trying to snuff these things out. But you know what, Christians? They've been written on your heart. That is what the new covenant promises. I will write my law upon your heart. It's on your heart. So snuff it out if you want to, but you can't snuff me out. I'm going to continue to seek to do and to teach God's standard of morality. And I challenge you in this time, in this culture to do the same. You be a living letter. You be a living epistle testifying to the truth, the inerrancy, the eternality of God's word, of God's law. This is important because I was reading a study this week that that just it articulated a phenomenon that is happening in our culture that I think is is mind-boggling. But this study comes from the Princeton Religion Research Center. Now listen to this findings. This was a study that was done before COVID when people were still able to meet in churches in person without limitations. But what the article headline read this, religion is gaining ground, but morality is losing ground. The article went on to say church attendance is actually increasing while morality simultaneously is decreasing. And you may be thinking, how can that be? How can people be more interested in God when at the same time they're less interested in actually doing what God says? And the answer is because they're not hearing, learning, being taught what God says. They love the concept of God. They love creator God. But they don't love the idea of standing before the mountain of God while it is shaking and smoking and thundering and lightning with absolute transcendent power and every single knee is buckling because the author of life and the creator of the universe is speaking his top 10 things that he wants people to know. Don't tell me that part because now I need to be held accountable. Now I will be held accountable to what I know. But that's not us, Christians. Calvary Chapel, that's not us. We love the word of God. We have a high regard for the word of God. Why? Because we have a high regard for God. That's been the connection. Those who have a low regard for God's word, you know what you're going to simultaneously find? They have a low regard for God. But not us. We, We believe because God says it, his word is exalted above his name. And if his word is exalted above his name, that means we're going to exalt his word. And we're going to see him in a high and lofty place. And we're going to see him in a personal capacity because that's what Jesus has done. So that's what this law is all about. That article is mind-boggling, but that is our culture. That is what we're up against. That is what is happening all around us. But as we come now with, with hopefully that perspective in mind, we're coming now as the children of Israel approaching the mountain of God Because he has brought us here on eagle's wings. Jesus has brought us into his presence to do what? Teach us his word. Teach us his ways. Teach us how to respond to him. Teach us how to not be like this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind to be made more like Jesus every single day. So with that perspective in mind, that's what we're looking at for these top 10, and specifically this morning, these top four. So let's read some text. I don't know how long that intro was, but we better get to some text. Exodus chapter 20, as promised, verse 1 says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall work and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. So those are the those are the four commandments. This is what we're going to look at for the more for this morning. This this is our text. I want you to notice this is the part where Jesus says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength." This is the part where Jesus sums up and says, "You can sum all those things up by just loving God in this way." Christians, this is how God wants to be loved as shown by these four commandments. So keep that in mind. As, as we, before we talk about them one by one, I just want us to remember this scene here. They're all at the foot of the mountain. They're as close as they can possibly get. Moses has gone down and is standing with them as well, right? Because Moses is under the law, under the word of God. God is greater than Moses, as is true for all of us. God's word is, is above all of us. We all come before God's word. God's word is our authority. It's the apparatus for all things life and ministry. God's word is our guide. God's word is our compass, a hammer, etc., etc. But remember, all these things are happening. These supernatural, naturally charged events are happening. There's noise, there's feeling, there's sound, there's visual stigma, stimulus. There's so much that's happening. But then it says God's voice speaks. And I imagine all those things just come to a quick halt And there's nothing that's competing with the voice of God. Just like when Jesus is in a boat that is in a raging storm. Remember, he's sleeping. His disciples are freaking out. And Jesus gets up and says, peace, be still. And not only do the winds immediately stop, but the waves of the Sea of Galilee that had been so churned up, it would have taken hours for those waves to settle down. Except when the Son of Man, when the Lord God of all creation speaks, it's just instantly like glass. There's a silence because nothing competes with the word of God. When God speaks, everything else takes a second place behind it. So that's what's happened in this moment. God is speaking. Please understand that these top 10, they're being audibly spoken by God himself. The other ones, they're going to be in a conversation between God and Moses, but everybody is hearing the audible voice of the Lord as he speaks his law into existence. But that's the scene. And as we think about, this is the first thing God wants his people to know. With everybody's undivided attention, trembling before this mountain, listen closely. This is what God wants his people to know first. I am the Lord your God. 
I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The very first thing God tells them is the means by which they have been saved. You could say this is their gospel. This is their good news. I am the God who saved you. I'm the God who did the work to deliver you out of the bondage that you were in. You cried out to me. You cried out to me in faith and I responded because faith is what is required to receive my grace. Before he utters a single word of his law, before he's given them anything to do in obedience to his law, he tells them, this is what I've already done for you. I've saved you. I've delivered you. I've redeemed you. I've bought you with my precious blood. That's the exact same picture that we see in the New Testament portrayed here. We are not saved because we obeyed first. If personal obedience was required before we got saved, nobody gets saved. Nobody leaves Egypt. We didn't obey first. Jesus obeyed first. And his perfect work is our righteousness. He deposits what he did on our behalf into our account because he He's worthy. He's holy. But that's what God is saying right here. He did all the work. But I want you to try and think about there, There's certainly some people at this mountain who are connecting dots. This is the Lord God who saved me. This is the Lord who heard my prayers. And I want you to think in some of their hearts, this feeling of absolute gratefulness and thankfulness and love and adoration is going through their minds and hearts right now. They just want to tell the Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. And it reminds me of another story. Listen to this story. It's so applicable. An orphan boy was living with his grandmother when their house caught on fire. Picture this situation. The grandmother, in trying to get upstairs to rescue the boy, perishes in the flames. This little boy, he's scared and he's crying out for help. And a stranger hears this and is going to climb up an iron drain pipe to rescue this boy, going to grab him. The boy's going to swing his arms around his neck and this man's going to climb down that drain pipe. Well, several weeks later, there's going to be some court hearings. They're they're going to try and decide who should take custody of this orphan boy. And there's a, a farmer and a teacher and the town's wealthiest citizens and they all give reasons why they are adequate, why they should be the ones chosen to give the boy the home. But through all of their arguments and the cases being made, this boy just just continues to look down at the floor, focused on the ground, somewhat emotionless. But at that time, a stranger walks in. And this man pulls his hands out of his pockets and the audience gasps because his hands have been horribly scarred because of the, the heat climbing up that drain pipe and climbing back down. But when that little boy sees that man and they connect eyes he jumps up and wraps his arms around him because those hands communicate one message you saved me you're the one who rescued me and everyone else who was trying to make a claim for custody of this boy saw this and slowly walks out because the statement remains that man was the boy's redeemer And that same exact thing should be happening in the hearts of the people who are before this mountain connecting the dots of what God has done to deliver them from Egypt, from that horrible bondage, from that tyrannical reign of Pharaoh over them. They're seeing them, and that should be our hearts as we think of Jesus and his nail-pierced hands that settle the same issue for us. You took my life that was in shackles. You took my life that was going to be wasted. You took my life and you redeemed it. You gave me life. You gave me eternal life. You gave me a future and a hope. It's all been fulfilled. 
So before you tell me to do anything, I'm already willing to do it because of what you did. That should be our hearts to this. When John says we love God because he first loved us, that's what it looks like. You delivered me. You redeemed me when I was lost and without hope. You gave everything for me. I don't even care what's on your top 10 list in the sense that I'm already willing to do it. My arms are already around your neck. You redeemed me. You love me. You gave me value. You show me I have value in you. Can we please see that in that context? He has demonstrated his love for for them, for us, before he says to do anything. He already has me. He bought me. I'm his. And that's what is being shown here in this incredible picture. So before he even says a single thing, he says, will you just please forever remember who I am? Will you please forever remember what I've done for you? Will you please forever remember where I've brought you, what I've brought you out of Christians when times are hard and they get hard sometimes? Will you please remember who the Lord is? What he's done for you when, when sometimes the things God calls us to do or the circumstances we find ourselves in, they're heavy, they're burdensome, they're hard. You know what makes them lighter? Remembering how things used to be. Remembering how things were when we didn't have hope, when we were just slaves to sin. Remember what it was like before he poured out his love for us and rescued and redeemed us? That's what God is asking. Will you just remember and never forget who I am? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And on the heels of that statement comes commandment number one when he says, you shall have no other gods before me. The next thing he says, and we say, absolutely agreed. Why would we even question that? On account of everything you've done, I won't look to another. I won't put my hope or trust in another. I'm not going to hold on to the false gods of Egypt, which you have shown are nothing. All idols, nothing. Deaf, blind, mute, nothing. Unable to redeem. Unable to withstand the awesome power of God. They can do nothing. So he says, have no other gods before me. Now at first glance, we can kind of think, well, well, is God saying, well, I guess I can have some other gods as long as they're just not before him, as long as they're not in front of him. Like you have a shelf in your house, you're like, all right, as long as God gets the top shelf, then I can have all my other gods on the bottom lower shelves. Listen, no, that is not what God is saying. When he says, have no gods before me, what he's literally saying is, have no gods before my face. When I look at you, I don't want to see you worshiping or looking to any other. Why? Because there are no other gods before me besides me is what the Lord is saying. There's one God. There's one Lord. There's one creator of the universe. Just one. And he says, I am the Lord your God. I want you to think about that. We're trying to look at these, these four commandments this morning and we want to understand two things. What do they mean and what do they teach us about God? So here, what does it mean? It literally means that I alone am the Lord. There are no gods beside me. Isaiah 45, verse five and six says this. God speaking, I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you Though you have not known me, 
that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. So have no other gods because there are no other gods. Anything that we worship in place of God is going to be called an idol. And we're going to talk about those in a minute. But he says, have no other gods before me. I am Lord. That's, that's what he means. When you think about this in, in the heart of every human being, if you're listening here, every single human being has inside their heart this deep cry for understanding. Is there a God? Who is that God? And I want you to understand what verse one just said. The Lord says, I am. I am the Lord your God. There's nobody to have an unanswered to that question. God says, I am his very name, Yahweh, the I am. I am the answer. I am the fulfillment. I am the Lord your God. There is none besides me. He makes it absolutely clear. But what else does this teach us about God? Think about this. It it takes the claims of atheism, that there is no God, and it ends them with one statement. There is a God. The Lord is. It takes the claims of of an agnostic saying, "There, there may be a God, but I don't know if he can be known. He says, I am the Lord your God, and I've shown you I can be known because I've brought you here. It takes the idea of polytheism, the belief that there's many gods, says, nope, there's just one, there's no other gods beside me. It takes the idea of pantheism, believing that all the universe is God, it says, nope, not true either. Again, I am the Lord your God, the one on this mountain, voice, speaking to you by voice. He settles all those issues. How can all those belief systems still be accelerating in our culture? Because we have let go of God's moral law. Because we've taken God's moral standards and mm, that's not for today. I bet we can come up with our own thing. What we come up with is infinitely less than what God has come up with. Because it's perfect. So we don't want to uproot some of those things. We want to say, this is what God says. This is how it works. The Lord God is God. There is no other. That's what the Bible says. So commandment number one, have no gods before me. That's what it says. That's what it means. That's what it teaches us about God. Commandment number two found in verse four. He says, you should not make for yourselves a carved image. You should have no idols. Don't make for yourself some God and then start to worship it. Listen, this is not speaking about artistic expression. This is not, this is not going to a pottery class. This is not making something or painting something or building something. God has made us in His image. And you know who God is? One of the many things is He's a creator. And so that idea, that, that notion, that ability we have to create things, that came from Him. So use those things to glorify God. Build things, create things, make things, even engrave things. But don't worship them. Don't don't attribute attributes of deity to those things because they're not the Lord your God. And that's what idolatry does. That's what seems to happen. Idolatry in our hearts, it starts to become something that maybe is supposed to aid us in our worship. But you know what happens? We find it easier just to worship that thing. It's a lot easier to touch the foot of that statue or kiss that statue or drop some coins on that thing than it is to actually seek God out in spirit and in truth to pursue a relationship with him. And so what we do is we take a cheap variation of what God isn't in place of who he is. 
And God says, don't do that. Have no idols. Don't take some shortcut. There are no shortcuts. Come to me and worship me. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, worship me in spirit and in truth. We understand that that's worshiping God because we've been made alive in the spirit. We can commune with him in the spirit and in truth intellectually. Make effort to pursue me. Make effort to seek me and find me. Obey me. Trust in me. Abide in me. It all takes effort. It's not some rote religious practice of just giving some credence to an idol, which is nothing. God does not want to be loved that way. God does not want there to be a substitute in our lives. God does not want us to try and take some shortcut for intimacy with him. This is all about how to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's not, to, that's not the way to do it. Have no idols. Don't fall into religious worship. Let God be God and pursue him for his being. Seek him and find him. Pray fast. Dig into his word. Seek him until you find him. He will be found by you. He promises. That's what he's after. That's what he wants. What does this teach us about God? It says it in this verse. Verse five, it says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And we think about that. That's a radical statement. But understand, this is not the jealousy of some insecure person. Please hear this. God is not jealous of that idol. God is jealous for you. His heart is for you. He wants you. He died on a cross for you. It's the idea, again, of a, of a marriage. Much of the Old Testament is picturing Israel, the nation of Israel, as God's wife, betrothed to the Lord, married to him. And what he equates idolatry to is adultery. You are going, you are playing the harlot, betraying my love for you by worshiping another. And what he says when he says, I'm jealous for you, it's like a husband who's not gonna put up with some false rival, some other guy competing for the heart of the woman he loves. No man who loves his wife is going to sit back while some other guy competes for the heart of his wife. He's gonna fight for her. And God is jealous for you in the same way. He's not just going to tolerate you finding yourself, finding some temporary satisfaction through some deceitful means. He loves you. He's zealous. He's passionate for you. And he wants to draw you back to himself. God is a jealous God in that capacity. And again, keep in mind that he's communicating this with his own voice on top of a quaking mountain filled with smoke. He's saying, I am the Lord your God and I'm jealous for you. I love you. That brings contentment and peace in my heart. There's nowhere else I'd want to be. I want to be with a God who loves me that much, who's earned and deserved my love by what he's done, not what I could never do. That's what he's communicating here through this. So just think about this. Meditate on some of these things. That's what it means. Don't worship idols. Don't create things in your heart that compete with God. He has all my heart. And when he shows me something is an idol, I don't have to say, ah, is that an idol? I say, Lord, you say it's an idol? It's an idol. Because you deserve all of me. And I want to give you all of me. So let the Holy Spirit bring conviction. If you're thinking, is that an idol in your life? Listen, it may be. And ask God, is that God? Do you want me to set that aside? Do you want me to put that on the altar? Do you want me to burn that away or let you burn it away? And if he says, yes, Christian, do it. 
because he's got more in store for you and that thing's actually a weight around your neck and holding you back. Give it to the Lord. He's good. Love him in this way. Commandment number three, verse seven, he says, don't use my name in vain. Don't take the name of the Lord your God as if it is a vain thing. This word vain, it literally means worthless. God's name is not worthless. Don't use the name of the Lord as if it's empty or devoid of force, lacking content, non-productive, dead, fruitless, aimless, of no lasting value. That's what it means to call something vain. God's name is not vain. Don't take it up. Don't use it in your vernacular. Don't use it, the, the oh my gods, the oh Jesus Christ, in a vain way. That is sin. That should not be on the lips of a Christian. That's not should be coming out of our mouths, right? Because it's deeming the Lord less than who he is. He's not just another word to accentuate a point. He's not a filler. He is the Lord. When you're thinking about the people at the foot of this mountain trembling before the awesome presence of God, nobody's wondering, I wonder if God's name is vain, right? That would be the last thought on their minds. They know his name is power. They know his name breaks chains. They know there is no other name given among men to call on and be saved, That's the name of the Lord our God. Honor it, revere it, use it with wisdom in in calculated context because that's the power of his name. Don't use it carelessly. I've always loved this example. There's a story with Alexander the Great, a great Grecian leader, Alexander the Great, right? That's, that's his name. Well, there was a soldier in Alexander the Great's army, but this guy was, was his, also, his name was also Alexander, but he was Alexander the Cowardly. So what he was doing is he was taking the name Alexander and he was taking it in vain. When he took his name up and took it into the battlefield, he made it seem like it was worthless. So Alexander the Great comes up to him and says, hey, I'm going to give you two options. Either change your name or change your character. And I've always loved that because listen, Christians, Christ, Christ, Christians, Christ-like Christians, I want to take up the name and I want it to be an inseparable part of my identity. I want people to know that guy loves Jesus. Listen, I do not always get it right. There's a ministry of reconciliation when I take the name of the Lord in vain because I live in hypocrisy or I do something that doesn't accurately reflect him. But I call it what it is and I say, forgive me, that wasn't representing Jesus. But you know what? I want him to change my character because I love the name. I love the name Jesus. I love the name Christian. I want to be associated with him. I need his grace. I need the power of the Holy Spirit and so do you, but I want him to change me from the inside out. Because I don't want to, I don't want to be without the Lord in anything. When I take Him up, I want to reflect Him accurately, and I only can do that if He gives me a, the power and the sustenance, the supply of the Holy Spirit. Same for you. But the the idea, the motive is the same. I don't want to use His name in vain. I want to bring honor and respect. I want to exalt the name. That's what I want to do. Exalt the name of Jesus. Don't profane it. There's some more verses in your study guide for you to look at later. Commandment number four, coming from verse eight, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now we talked about this in greater detail a few weeks ago back in Exodus chapter 16. And we talked about what it meant to take one day out of seven, one 
day a week, God says, I want you to rest. But we talked about what it was originally about. It was to cease doing what you normally do. To settle down, to take some rest, to spend time with the Lord, to spend time with friends and family, to recharge your batteries, to have one day be different. We talked about how it was a gift from God, how in this ancient culture, nobody did that. There was no such thing as a day off. There were no earned time benefits in the ancient world. But God says, because he loves us, I want you to take a rest. I want you to take one day and let it be a Sabbath day, a Sabbath unto me, a time to remember me. When he says, keep it holy, he literally means keep it set apart. Keep it different. Don't let that day be like every other day. Let that day be set apart. God knows how hard it was. This was an agrarian society. When you've got crops ready to be harvested in the field, it's really hard to take a Sabbath because there's your whole year's food and whatever revenue that may be coming in for you. But if you actually rest, you know what you're doing? Is I'm trusting God and walking by faith. One day is going to exist where I'm going to trust God by faith. And if you do that, it becomes a pattern of your life. We can look at the nation of Israel and say, oh, what would have been if they would have honored the Sabbath? We look at our culture, oh, what could have been, what once was, if we kept honoring the Sabbath? But we can also say, what would it be in our hearts today if we love God in this way? I'm going to take one day. Again, don't make this some legalistic thing. It doesn't have to be Saturday. Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, the Sabbath in this context. It can be Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. That's when we meet. That's today. Or it could be Monday or Tuesday or any other week because Jesus gives us the freedom when he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not about a day anymore. It's about Jesus. Jesus is our rest. So take some time one day a week. Say, I, I need you, Jesus. I need you for my Mondays and my Tuesdays and my Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays. I need you every day. I need you for my next breath. You are my Sabbath. You are my rest. So I'm going to turn my attention to you. I'm going to turn my focus to you. I'm going to turn all of me to you. Why? That's how he wants to be loved. All of these things, these four, that's what Jesus says. This is how we can love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In this way, have no other gods before him. Don't let anybody compete. Don't let anything compete with your love for Jesus. Have no engraven images. Don't worship anything else. Don't put anything on the same plane as him. And then we talked about not misusing his name and then keeping the Sabbath. That's what God wants us to do. That's how he wants to be loved. And for us here, as we take this step back and we remember ourselves being at the foot of the mountain, we say, that is absolutely reasonable. There's not any, it's a list of four things at this point. It's going to be ultimately 10. I mean, you're kidding me. This is not unreasonable for the God of the universe who has done all these things for me. So what I do is we take a step back. There's not a whole lot more to say here. These are easy enough for a child to understand. But what it takes is a child of God now to obey. We all understand these. We all get them. If we've now processed the point where we see they are still for today, in Christ, as I love him, I'm to obey these commandments. Now comes the point where we choose to do that. We say, God, I I want to do this. I want to love you in this way. I've been saved, and now I can practice these things in my relationship with you and let them be a part of my everyday life. That's what God wants us to do, and we should want to respond exactly that same way. 
Think about Jesus reaching out his righteous right hand to you today. Think about every single one of you. Think about Jesus reaching out his righteous right hand. And the first thing you see, because you can't not see it, is there's a nail piercing in each one. And he says, I want you to know these, these hands settle the issue. What I really want you to do is wrap your arms around me. I want you to wrap your arms around me. Let me carry you. Let me teach you my ways. What does Jesus say over and over? Follow me. Follow me. Jesus doesn't ever ask us to do anything that he hasn't done that he won't be with us as we do it. So trust him. Let him lead and guide. But it first takes just a surrender. Say, God, I want to do this. I want to love you the way you want to be loved. I want to take your word at face value and let the plain thing be the main thing and say, God, help me. Help me do these things in obedience to you. Help me love you. That's our hearts. Please take some time just this week keeping on these four things. Think about how can I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength in these four ways. Please add them to a, a prayer list. Put them on some, some memory verses. Spend some time in the first 11 verses of Exodus chapter 20 and see how God starts to minister to your heart. That's my prayer for you and that's what I'm going to be doing this week as well. So pray with me as we close out our time together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, we think about this, this teaching, this text. We think about how huge this moment is because God, you made it that way. You set this, this whole chapter apart. You set these 10 things apart because this is what you did. You spoke them for all to hear. You've preserved them to be written and recorded. You allowed Jesus to be asked the question where he says, this is the great commandment. We have you, Jesus, on record telling us the most important thing to you. To love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll talk about our neighbor this week, but... This week, Father, please help us love you the way you want to be loved. Help us confess the areas that we're falling short. Help us repent to turn and change direction, to change our minds and change direction from the places that we're walking in opposition to you. Father, you've redeemed us. You've restored us. You bought us with your precious blood. We are yours. And there's nothing more we want to do than love you in return to love you with our lives. So I pray that there be no condemnation in any heart, in anyone listening, but Father, there would also be a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Spirit upon your church, we pray. Pour out your Spirit upon us as individual Christians right now, we pray. We need you, Jesus, to love you the way you deserve to be loved. We need more of you to love the people around us. And there is so much of you to go around, God. The fount that never runs dry. So pour out upon your people. Pour out in this moment. Let the floodwaters be broken loose. And fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.